The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm your host, Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Christina Locconi, the Chief People Officer at Rapid7, and Christina happens to be one of the first people to rename her HR department to People Strategy and using the term Chief People Officer. We talk a little bit about that on the podcast. Uh, she was the first HR person at Sapient, and that was a fascinating organization we talked a little bit about as well. She really shares her passion for her work and how she sees her role as one that drives values and culture throughout the organization in partnership with the visionary CEO. Christina talks so candidly and openly about her beliefs and approach to her work and her commitment to be all in on the company mission. I'm sure you'll enjoy this podcast. Just a few words about what's coming next on the podcast. We have our diversity and inclusion series of podcasts leading up to Nira's DNI Gala on March 22nd. The first such podcast is someone who could be described as the father of diversity recruiting in the Northeast, and that's Frank McCarthy. He's the president and founder of Diverse Workplace, and he also founded Xavier Associates. Also in this diversity and inclusion podcast series, we have Lydia Green at Tufts Health Plan, and following Lydia, Ed Hurley-Wales from ADP, and maybe even one other surprise guest to follow. And now I bring you Christina Luconi. Well, here we are at the Rapid7 headquarters, welcoming Christina Luconi, the Chief People me. Officer. Good to yes. have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I mentioned this is the headquarters, but not for long. Not for long. Another year and a half. It's going to take a while. Yeah, your we news. Are, we are outgrowing our headquarters once again. So I think for the third or fourth time since I've been with the company in the last seven years, we are outgrowing our space. And, and well, those are good problems to have. Yeah, very good problems growth to have. Growth stories Very, very are good. fortunate. Rapid growth, if you very, will. Yes. <laughs> That's the pun of the podcast. I always have one. Excellent. So I'll just there get it out go. of the way yeah, you, very you early, early in this one. You know, several and several guests of mine have said, you have to interview Christina for the podcast. I've heard about you a lot over the years. I think it's because you've really been a pioneer in leading and pushing the HR function, not with external goals, really inside your organizations you've mm-hmm. done that, but the word has got out. So... I'm really excited to be able to sit down with you today and ask you about your background. And what are some of the things, before we get into what you've done at this organization and others and your philosophy, what are some of the things that influenced you, people, experiences that helped shape your philosophy and your approach? Sure. Probably a couple things. Um, A few are people, and then one was an instance. So I was a psychology major in college, and I thought I wanted to go into therapy work. And I realized this is a horrible admission, but very candid, which is, you know, a few years into my degree, I realized I was probably not nearly empathetic enough to listen to people's problems every single day. (laughs) And my dad, who was a very practical three-degree guy from MIT, said, you know, why don't you get a real job for the summer? Stop scooping ice cream. Go intern at a company and, and see, you know, if you can find something that actually will get you employed when you graduate. And And I found a little growing company in Cambridge, ironically in the same building where we have our development office in Cambridge. And um, it was a little software company, and the company went public about three weeks into my internship. 
And I was an idiot, 20-year-old, and I thought, you know, oh, this is great, smart people, good idea, company goes public, everyone makes money, that's what I want to do. And that's what I ultimately ended up going after and finding. And I realized very early on that if you're in growth companies and you are very young with very few skills, surrounding yourself in environments where you just raise your hand and, and there's so much work that needs to be done. You don't get boxed in. You might have a job description that you have to do. But if you're assertive and say, hey, I would love to learn or I would love to help out or anything you can do to, to help me, give me an opportunity, I'll learn, I'll work my tush up for you. Um, and, and people jump all over that, right? Because it takes a village to build a startup. And, and there's so many needs popping up so everywhere, many needs. right? So I got very fortunate to figure that out very early on. Just from a growth perspective, I'm insanely curious, love to learn. So those environments were really good for me, and, and I wasn't always stagnating. The other piece I figured out pretty early on was um, I asked a lot of questions. So for me, human resources it made zero sense to me. I mean, I sort of was like, I don't understand. Like, if your company is really trying to grow and you're thinking of people as resources, like my printer's a resource. And I started questioning, and luckily people embrace that as opposed to saying, please shut the hell up and just go <laughs> file these papers. Um, so I I got very lucky early on. I think the most influential people very early on in my career were my dad. He's a serial entrepreneur. He started his first company out of graduate school and um, with a few of his fraternity brothers, and it actually did quite well. And and I sort of thought, oh, you know, it's pretty nice not to have a boss. Like, wouldn't it be great if you could? <laughs> He's in charge of his easy. career, yeah. Um, so I thought that was really, he was an interesting on so many different levels and, and so much smarter than me in so many different ways. But I learned a ton from him, especially work ethic and being all in. The other sort of very influential uh, people very early on in my career were the team at Sapient. That was my second job out of school, and it was literally a group of 20-somethings running a company before that became a you know very in vogue thing to do these days. Right. But um, it was a group of people with a lot of magical thinking that mm-hmm. that we did not know the word no. So people like Jerry Greenberg and, and Stuart Moore, who were the co-CEOs at the time, just had a belief that we could do something pretty spectacular, and, and we all sort of banded together and created something pretty amazing. So from the time I was there, I think I joined when we were just under 200 and five years later, we were at 3,500. That kind of growth wow. is just crazy. Well, and you mentioned Sapient. I was going to ask you about Sapient because so many great leaders have come out of that organization mm. that are, you know, doing super things, especially in the HR function. Some great leaders have come out. Yeah. Uh, what was it about the Sapient culture that um, created all of that? Um, a couple things. I think Jerry and Stu set a really good tone for what they thought was really, both really insanely smart guys, um, but also really realized it was going to be the people. It didn't really matter what services we we had or what we were doing with our customers. Ultimately, it was the people that we had in the organization that were going to allow us to actually achieve those crazy goals. Mm-hmm. And for me, that sort of very formatively helped me realize whatever job I ever take in the future has got to be, like, I got to choose the job based on the CEO, not based on, you know, obviously the company has to look like it's positioned to do well and all of that. But you know, cybersecurity wouldn't have been the thing I grew up and thought, oh, this is my industry. But it was based on the CEO. And, and at Sapient, you know, what they did was actually less important to me than who I was doing it with. Mm-hmm. And I think that became really important. So I think for Jerry, Jerry and Sue set such a balanced tone. They're very, very different leaders. The fact that they shared an office, they, you know, before anybody was thinking about all these open workspaces and stuff. Yeah, we, this is we what, were, This is 1994, 95. So, you know, everybody shared an office, you know, we're an executive team. I shared an office with three other people. Um, 
we all partnered together on everything. You wouldn't make a move without checkpointing it with the team. So all these concepts that are becoming really popular now, we were thinking about 20-something years mm. ago. And the fact that Jerry and Stu were so balanced, you know, they were both very visionary, but Jerry was very much the face of the company. And 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 Stuart was sort of the, the mad scientist behind mm. the scenes. And there was something for everybody. Everybody Inside could relate. Yeah, yeah, everybody, investors and employees could relate to at least one of them. Um, and I think they, they set an environment where we were all willing to take risks and dust ourselves off if things didn't go well. And, and um, it was a, it was a pretty pretty special place. I heard you, there was something that you might have been involved in, the Founders Award, which was mm-hmm. really about, well, you could talk about it. I won't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way that I have always approached people's strategy was to think about what is the culture of the company. I've always been fortunate enough to go in when there was nothing established. I went into Sapient. There was, you know, somebody who was doing benefits, but there wasn't really a lot wasn't that an existed HR function, yet. There was really. no HR. Yeah. And um, you were one of the first HR people. I was the first HR. You person. were the first HR person there. Wow. And I have always sort of thought if you start with knowing who you are. So you know, the way I think about culture, culture is getting a lot of press right now, but it gets a lot of press as like free food and ping pong tables, and that's not necessarily <laughs> how I think about it. I think about it as what is your shared belief system? What's the common thread that binds your entire company together that will allow you to scale? You have to identify that first, and then you have to tie it back to every element of the employee life cycle. So from how you recruit people, how you onboard them, how you develop them, how you reward them, all of those things become really important. So as Sapient, we had a set of core values that were very important to us. Coming up with the Founders Award was just one more way to tie that back. What is it that we truly value? But back in the day, I think we had our employees actually nominate people for who they thought should win the award. And ultimately, Jerry and Stu would be select the winner. But it was based on those values that we we really believed in. And it had quite quite prestige in the organization. It did. I mean, it went to one person a quarter, I think. and, and, And we would, you know, do town halls and gather everyone together. So for that person that got that in, in a very large growing organization was a pretty big deal. Right. And that's um, over 20 years ago before right. those things were common. Mm-hmm. So uh, what uh, drew you to Rapid7? I've been really fortunate. I mean, my career, I've done startups in my fifth or sixth one. And in between, I'll leave and go consult. So when I leave a company, I don't usually go to another company. I go, you know, do my own thing and mm-hmm. do the same work I do, but with smaller startups until I fall in love with a customer and say, okay, I've got to go join this thing. And that's what happened in this case as well. I'd been doing some consulting. Somebody from a former life was working here and said, we really need some help. We think we're we're growing the organization. We think we're going to try to sell it. We need to put some, you know, ultimately some lipstick on the pig. And can you come help us do this? And and I did. You know, I thought this will be an interesting gig. I knew some, it's always nice when you know somebody in the organization, you have a, a, a fairly decent perspective coming in. Um, didn't think I would join it. I didn't think I had another cybersecurity company left in me, mm. but I thought it would be an interesting project. And the longer that I was here, I was here for probably four or five months before Corey, who's now our CEO, he was the COO at the time, started really focusing on what ifs. And what if we really went and played long ball and, and tried to take this thing and grow it, not just try to sell it? And what if, what if? You know, I think Corey's a really aspirational brilliant guy and I don't throw that I think I've that used that word twice right now and I don't throw that around lightly I've just been really fortunate to work with some pretty amazing people super bright guy and I think what happened at that period of time was people started actually listening to him and started following okay what like I believe we could do that what if and at the time I think our board ultimately ended up seeing that the team that was in place at that point was really listening to Corey 
company. We had another CEO in place at the time who was great. He was somebody we all respected and liked, but ultimately was focused on some different things. And I think the board ultimately said, if you're all listening to Corey, maybe he's the right person to run the company. And I think around at the same time, you know, Corey was thinking about what were the next steps for him as well. Did he want to stay here? Did he want to go try to be a CEO at a small company and learn? And all of those things came to fruition at the same time. And ultimately, he and I made a made a deal at a summer party, Rapid Seven party, and did the I'm in if you're in. <laughs> and that turned out to be an incredibly awesome thing for me, certainly. I mean, I just, I couldn't, I don't have more respect for another person. I just think he's an amazing guy to work with. But I also think it was a really special time that we've gotten to ultimately rebuild a lot of the team. I, you know, we've had some leadership come and go over the years, and mm. our CTO, who is one of our founders, is still on board and still thriving. But we've been able to build a team that we've now been together for most of us for four or five years. And so, a little bit about the growth. So, I imagine you know culture is so important to you, and you built a great culture here, you and Corey and others. Um, when you go global, how does that impact your ability? to maintain that culture. Sure. How do you keep the most important things to you? Sure. I think for me, it all comes back to the core values, really knowing what you believe in. And they're so tightly tied to everything that we do that scales globally. So, I mean, we certainly, we have an office in Dublin and and I was there a, a while back and one of the leaders in the office was like, look, I totally buy into the core values, but the moose is really stupid. And it was kind of funny. I mean, culturally, they're just like, that's so hokey. And why do you guys do it? And our moose is not our core value. It's just one of our symbols of teamwork. And, mm. and it is a little goofy. And we acknowledge that it's goofy. But Can it also doesn't scale globally. Yeah. yeah. Um, the moose for us, it was it certainly predates me. One of our early leaders um, had come up with the concept of the singular of the word moose is moose. The plural of the word moose is also moose. So together, we're all one moose. And it became a symbol, a symbol of teamwork, and and it ended up taking on a life of its own. So even the day we went public in 2015, and Corey addressed the entire company, and he, and literally it was like moose, and he's talking on you know CNBC about moose, and people are probably looking at him like, what the hell is this guy talking about? But it was it's it is definitely how we refer to each other, and and it is a little tongue in cheek and goofy, but mm. it's also a piece of who we are. Mm. Um, but the to get back to your scaling the culture. I think having that core set of beliefs that, you know, our values for us are not just something that we put on a coffee cup or stick up on a sticker on the, on the wall and say, everyone go memorize it. Instead, it's so tightly wound into everything that we do. Like people, we're going through a promotion process right now for, for new leadership in the company. And we evaluate people on skills and do they have, you know, the strong leadership skills and all these other things. We also measure them on their core values. And you could be phenomenal. You could be an amazing salesperson who's knocking it out of the park in terms of hitting your number. But if you are not operating as a team player or if you are not interested in all in learning and growing, but rather you want to do everything by the status quo, you're likely not getting promoted because that is one of the ways that we allow those those values to scale. Mm. So fortunately, because that is such a huge piece of who we are and what we weave in, we look for leaders that embrace that. So globally, the people that we've hired are certainly in support and lead lead through the values. And obviously, in each office, they have their own little certain vibe to them. Everything feels a little bit different mm. in Singapore than it does in Belfast sure. or it does in Los Angeles. However, the, the, the mindset is still very similar. So, for example, we have um, kickoffs that we do each year. And when we bring... Um, Product kickoffs? We or? do well. Historically, we had done it the entire organization coming together. This is the first year that we're just so big that it you can't send everyone to Boston 
Um, so we've split it up. So we have a products kickoff, we have um, a sales kickoff, we have a services kickoff, and then our all our GNA functions end up going to the sales kickoff for a piece of it. And when we did our last one that was global, we had everybody in the company come in and we had our folks from Singapore and we had our folks from our European countries, et cetera. And yet they walked in the room and every single person bled rapid seven. I mean, it was like the fact they lived in different countries Mm. sort of disappeared very quickly and everyone had this connection point. We all spoke the same language. Mm. Um, And that I think is, that was just such a moving moment of like, wow, this is actually, it does work, right? So what are some of the values? Um, we start, so if you think of it as a compass, we, uh, first of all, let me give you a little context how we came up with them. We actually used a group of about 30 cultural icons, if you will, in the company when we were about 90. I'd been here for just, a, you know, probably two months or so before, um, before we started working. We well, just identified here. These we are just people said, these that are we want to build. We, we believe we like the doing, way they operate. We, we yeah. like the way they yeah. operate. Yeah. We, you know, no one can articulate what our culture is, but we think these are the people that really get it. <laughs> And they represented every team, every level in the organization. And I worked with them for about two months where we tried to articulate what, what do we believe in. And some of them mm. were aspirational and some of them we thought we nailed and, mm. and whatever. But rather than have the executive team come down and say, this is what we believe in, we thought, what is it that we believe in? So obviously the exec team had to sign off and we tweaked a few words, et cetera. But ultimately, this group of people, a third of the company was already bought in by the time we rolled them out. That made it significantly easier for adoption. Correct. So what we ended up coming up with was, if you think of a compass in the center of it, is meaningful customer partnerships. And that was really, our, candidly, our, our aspirational value at the time because when we were, you know, sub to $20 million, we were selling a lot of air, right? We, we didn't have established products yet. We mm-hmm. were just building. Trying to make a name. <clears throat> trying right? to make a name for ourselves and build our brand. We're so fixated on just getting the revenue and, and pounding the phones and, and things. And we thought, really, if we're going to scale this thing, we need to operate differently. So, you know, customers, obviously, I think lots of people have customers in their yeah. in their in their aspirations. And that's really important. But it, it the word partnership became the operative word there, which is we need to actually listen to our customers. We need to worry with them about what's keeping them up at night. What are they afraid about? And so rather than just being fixated on selling them something, let's really understand their needs. It just became a completely different way of approaching our customers. And and it used to be aspirational. I'd like to think that we've, we've gotten much, much, much better at, at that mm. over the years. Um, and then we, the reason we did a compass was because on the axes, they actually are meant to work together. So we have continuous learning and disciplined risk-taking on one set. For us, you know, the way that we're going to continue to scale this company pretty quickly and continue to innovate is by taking disciplined risks. And disciplined is important to us because we don't want to be completely stupid and just, right. you know, everyone check the window. Exactly. Risk and security but, business, but, right. right. So we'll take some disciplined risks. And if they work, then we'll continue and invest and, and, and make take bigger risks. Right. Um, but along the way, we need to be insatiably curious, right? So that continuous learning for people that just say, this is the status quo, or I've nailed it, now I'm on to the next thing. Like, those people don't necessarily love being here because we're constantly asking ourselves what could we do differently what could we do better the world is changing so quickly how do yeah. we adapt it's, it reminds me of something you said i was in the audience when you were uh, speaking at the ebs event mm. down at gillette stadium and you talked about how Corey wants people to challenge his thinking and the thinking sure. of the organization um yeah you know. i mean i think i think he's an incredibly confident person to be able to be you know a ceo who like 
anyone could challenge him and ask questions and, you know, lots of times he's right and sometimes he's wrong. He has no problem being wrong because it's pushing his thinking. I mean, Corey is, Corey is the interesting CEO who still takes the bus every day to work so that he can listen to podcasts on his way to work or read. He's Maybe he'll always, listen to this one. Yeah, I, he knows enough about me. He probably doesn't, <laughs> he probably doesn't need to. But he's 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 always looking to learn something new, and I think he believes, he really believes that can come from anyone in the company. So mm-hmm. if somebody is, you know, a new BDR who, who has a point of view on something, he's certainly willing to listen to it. Right. So that's consistent with one of the values you were just talking mm-hmm. about, but I cut you off. There's more. No, there's more so, so continuous learning and, okay. and, and discipline risk-taking are two huge ones that work hand-in-hand. And then the other two are individual excellence and, and teamwork, and those go hand-in-hand too, where we obviously try to hire the best people that we we possibly can. And that isn't just like you have a great resume, great skill set, but you are um, not just understanding, but embracing our values. You have a great attitude, but you can't just make it all about you. If you're one of those people that's like, sure, I'll take on that extra project. How much more are you going to pay me? Or when does the promotion come with it? We're sort of the mindset of like, we're playing for the team. We're all playing for the team. And everyone has to have that sort of grab the shovel mentality. And by the way, if you operate that way, all that other stuff that you care about is absolutely going to happen. The people that truly live our core values are the ones that get the biggest raises, the most promotions, the most opportunity. Mm. So it's maybe a backwards way of doing it, mm. but that has worked really well for us. How do you know when you're interviewing somebody that they fit the culture? Can you find out through interviewing? Um, we try. I, I yeah. think it's it's hard. Mm. Um, certainly we've made mistakes, just like everybody else. But But again, we actually, every single person that comes in here has a culture interview. Now, everyone else is, all the other interviews they have are probing at some stuff, but there is, you know, I still, everybody sort of director and above, I still interview um, within the company because I'm going hardcore on the culture stuff and I will ask them questions about, you know, not just, hey, do you know what our core values are, but really, like, give me an example of when when you took a disciplined risk and tell me about when you failed at it and mm-hmm. how did you respond and, and those types of things. And, and I think the fact that we really drill on that stuff it's hard to recruit. It, you know, we, we happen to have offices in some pretty competitive markets, and it would be really easy to just default and put a butt in a seat because, you mm-hmm. you know, you, you get a little antsy and desperate and whatever. Any time that we have ever done that, it has failed miserably, and the person's never lasting. So we really believe the culture piece for us, I don't care how good your resume is, if you're not a fit, and not just a fit, candidly, but can, going to contribute to it. I mean, the, the notion of culture fit sounds like, come morph yourself to be like us, mm. which I don't necessarily love. I think about it more in terms of what are you going to actually contribute to our culture to continue to have it flourish. Um, so we look for those people. Mm. Can't somebody be just charismatic in the interview and kind of... We can think, cut through that bullshit. Oh, you, can't, you, can, you can get through that. <laughs> I've interviewed thousands of people in my life. I think I have pretty decent, pretty decent radar at this point. But sure, people do that. I mean, yeah. that's happened to us before. We mentioned earlier the uh, new headquarters mm. at North Station, at, at the old Boston Garden site. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that fits in. Sure. With, and it will fit in with your culture and your growth strategy. Sure. We've grown a lot. So when I joined, we were in this, I won't, I won't um, make fun of our old space, but I mean, it was like classic startup space in Back Bay, and it wasn't very glamorous at all. And I'm sure it was like many startups. Yes, right. like yes, exactly. Right. Build your own desk, and it's very glam- <laughs> very glamorous. And then we we grew up a little bit and outgrew that space, and ultimately ended up at the Prudential, um, which felt this is probably a horrible analogy, but we felt like to me, you know, a teenage boy wearing his dad's suit to the prom. Like it just did not fit us at all. Might have looked good 
from a you know from a distance, but yeah, yeah. it just it it was a lot of mahogany, and you know if we were a law firm, yeah. it probably would have been lovely, like a hedge fund or something. Yeah, yeah it just right. it just didn't suit us at all. And um and when we finally moved into this space at a hundred summer, that was the first time that we actually got a chance to really be creative with what are we trying to create here? What are we trying to do differently? And we worked with an amazing design firm, um, Interior Architects, and they've become such a great partner with us in our other spaces. But they really sort of were great at pulling out some of the ideas in our heads and and actually having it come to life here. Now, we've been here three and a half years, I guess, and we thought we were so forward-thinking when we came here. We thought this was the most 20, amazing You'll be here space. 20 years or oh, something, right? Oh, yeah. well, this is so great. <laughs> and look at how creative we are. And, and, and three and a half years later, it feels so dated to us. Um, which has really made us think differently about this new space. And what we ended up doing when we knew we were outgrowing this and we needed to start looking for for a new space, we didn't just think, how do we focus on headquarters, but rather, what is going to be the physical manifestation of our culture? And how do we set the tone with a headquarters, but actually have that work through all of the different offices that we have? Not so they all look exactly alike, but they all have some key elements. And it really challenged us to think about how are people working today? People are working today differently than they worked when we moved here three and a half years ago, right? So, for example, I took my office apart. And um, my 14-year-old daughter one night was being really candidly very annoying. And I gave her a project of like, just give me 15 minutes to finish this. Why, here's a box of my office. You have a $1,000 budget. See what you can design. And she actually came up with like an HGTV. Yeah, episode. like she, yeah. And she and she did it. She I think she went you know a hundred dollars over budget. And by the time she was done though, she thought, well, mom, when you sit on the couch, when you're at home, you sit on the couch and you check your email. And you know sometimes you sit at the desk when you have things to do. And then you need when you're talking to people, you need to be really comfortable in talking because it feels like a power move if you're sitting over a desk. I don't know how she learned this at 14, but she she was completely right. Listening to her mom, probably. So, uh, so we we actually, I got rid of all my office furniture, and my, I have the one weird office in the company where I bought all my own stuff. I have a great couch, and it feels like a, ironically coming full circle, never became a therapist. My office looks like a therapist's <laughs> office. But it's turned out to be great. And that, that one little stupid move actually started me thinking about how do people work now? How do we want to think about the way in which all of our people have different needs throughout the day. So we started designing a space that would allow people to sit at a fixed desk and have their own space and and be able to do thought work, but also build communities and neighborhoods so that people could do different things. And there's different destinations and spaces um, where people can huddle together and, and you don't have to be in a closed room to have a meeting. You could do a stand-up. So this is already designed. Table. It's a year and a half away it, and it's all the plans are But we wanted to design it really quickly because we knew, for example, our Austin office is moving um, in February and we would want to apply those same theories to these other offices. Again, consistent culture across <clears throat> exactly. the whole world, right? So we involve, just like we do anytime we have people-related stuff, we involve a lot of our people in making some of those decisions. So we might have the initial thought, but any idea I ever have is going to be you know, infinitely better if we involve our people and sort of okay well how does that really work for you how will this mm-hmm. manifest so it's it's i'm pretty excited about being able to do this we now have um literally just started yesterday somebody phenomenal who's running workplace experience and like we don't think about it as real estate we really it's think part about of your, it as the, it's, it's part it of reports your, to me yeah. it, and it's it's really uh the physical manifestation of our culture you were one of the first people to change the name of hr i think we touched on a little bit as you talked about the culture here and the culture at, at sapient 
chief people officer, people strategy. You've used that language already in our conversation. Maybe just a little bit about how you started to think about that. I think you did touch sure. on it already at Safian, but just more more of the thinking around sure. how you think about what HR's role is, the words you use. I don't think you use the word employee. Um, or you uh, might, I don't yeah, know. Maybe you do. Do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah okay. I don't have a hang-up about that one. Okay. I definitely have a hang-up about human resources. Okay. Maybe um, it's a little explaining Sure. That. So I think... Again, I mean, I don't, I just, I don't like the word human resources because I don't like thinking of people as resources. I just think, I just think. Because it sounds like a physical object. It sounds like a physical object. A a line item on a spreadsheet or something. Honestly, they are the lifeblood of your company. And, and I think we have to think about them that way. That doesn't mean I think you have to kowtow and, you know, deal with every entitled thing that people want. That's not how I think about it, but. I will certainly not suggest that I came up with the notion of people strategy, but I've certainly never heard of it before. Um, we started using it at Sapien. Right. Um, and the reason that we came up with it that way was because when I joined, we spent a lot of time thinking, like, Jer- before I signed up, Jerry and I both had some pretty deep conversations about, he's like, I hate HR. We haven't had it till now because I just, I hate the whole complaint department, that kind of thing. And I, I'm like, then that's not what I want to build. I don't, I don't want to do that at all. And we ended up coming up with that whole concept, I think, together. And the way that I ended up getting a job there was because we were in deep agreement that this is the strategic direction of the company and the people have got to support that strategy. So if you marry the business strategy with the people strategy, you're probably going to get people that understand and and understand how to operate in that environment. So that's where it sort of initially came from. Then it became really important to not just like people throw the word strategy around a lot. Mm Um, and I don't know, I think that's been one of the challenges in the HR community overall, where everyone wants to be strategic, they just don't feel like they have the voice to be or the courage to, I don't know, I don't, I won't suppose why they don't do it, but I have been incredibly lucky in that I've chosen to work with CEOs who get it. And I don't even know how to define what get it means, but they get the people piece of it. And um, I understand that I am incredibly fortunate for that dynamic between you know, Jerry and Stu, and then um, the folks I worked with at At Stake, and then Corey. Uh, you know, I I don't do a lot of stuff well, but I choose CEOs well. And, and to find one that truly gets the people elements of it. They don't necessarily have to know how to do it. They just have to really understand and embrace it. Speaking of leadership, um, maybe a little bit about your views about leadership here at Rapid7 and what makes a great leader sure. at this organization. I imagine I, it has I, something to do with the culture. <laughs> I think so. I mean... I think, I think there's a couple pieces to it. Number one, I mean, we, culture fit really, it's not just a thing. Like, it is really important to us. So, for example, we have hired, um, I'll try to be delicate about this, but, but you know, we have made mistakes. And, and if we focus on skill and think, okay, well, this person, it's a good person, right? I mean, we've never hired too many jerks. But we, we think you'll, they'll learn the culture. They'll figure it out. If we don't really believe the person's ultimately a culture fit, we absolutely should not hire them because we've found it, it just blows up in our face and it, and it can cause so much damage, especially the more senior the person is. And one of the interesting dynamics that I've seen as we've grown larger, and I've seen this at every company I've ever been at, is that when you grow leaders from within the organization or when the company's much smaller, it's so easy to find those fits and, and, and sort of have it all work together. The larger you get and the more people you need to bring in from the outside at very senior levels, they've been successful for a reason. They have a playbook that, that they follow and it worked here, so it's going to work here. And maybe they just put a different, you know, 
color on the folder, but this is my book. Mm. And that, I think that's a little bit dangerous. You, you know, I think everybody has to, you start fresh every place you go, and it doesn't negate any of the past successes you've had, but it does mean you have to understand the environment that you're joining. And we've had, we've had some fits and starts with that here with some of the senior leaders that we've brought in. In fact, um, Andrew Burton, who's our COO, we ended up with him as one of our leaders by acquisition. We had hired, we had bought his company um, right after we went public, which was insane on our part. But again, we take lots of risks, so um, it turned out to be a really good one. And and I think Andrew's thought process at that point was, I'm going to come here, I'll do my year to integrate the companies, and then I'm going to go off on my merry way and be a CEO of them. Mm. And when we were doing the diligence, I think I was the last person that Andrew met, and and he tells this really funny story about how. You know, why the hell am I meeting this girl, Christina? You know, what what are we going to talk about? Maybe she wants to talk about my comp or something. Mm. And I was there to figure out whether or not this, like, the deal was almost done. But if I didn't think that Andrew was a good culture fit, like, I was going to put the kibosh on the thing. And we ended up having this incredibly candid, honest conversation about his leadership and, and what he was good at and what he had struggled with and why that would work here and, and all kinds of stuff. And by the end of that, meeting. I would have run through a wall for him. I thought he was going to be phenomenal here. And I think he walked away saying, oh my gosh, they actually take this really seriously. That's great. He didn't really get it until he started. And he sat in his first exec staff meeting and our general counsel was asking all kinds of questions about the forecast. And he's like, why the hell would this guy be asking? Like you're a lawyer. Why are you asking about this? And then (laughs) he's like, yeah. And and, And what he really ascertained very quickly was, they really take this stuff seriously. Like they are all in this together. They all want to help each other. So I think the bottom line is like, I'm a major in people strategy, but I minor in products and sales. And, and I think we all sort of all think about functions. that. I think we all think that way. We're kind of all in this together. We all have to support each other. You and I were at a, when I first met you just a, several weeks ago, actually at the HRLF event, mm-hmm. um, there was a speaker that talked a lot about millennials and how you attract, retain, you know, what's what's different about millennials than other generations and what are your views on millennials here at Rapid Seven? Um, mm. I don't I think they get a bad rap, lots of them. I think that what I've learned is um, yes, is it is it a different generational group for sure. We've taken a couple nods from them and it we've tweaked a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of changing our behavior just to accommodate folks. However, we've learned that a lot of our millennials um, really value progression, for example. And that doesn't mean that everyone's going to you know, have a VP title by the time they're 24. Mm-hmm. But what we've done, so for example, in our sales org, we've done micro promotions. Um, so if somebody goes from a business development rep to a senior business development rep, inside a fairly short time period, they're getting the scale skills, they're growing their career, they're, they're beginning to build things. But they're actually seeing some recognition of, hey, I'm growing, learning, get a little more money, More steps on the ladder. Exactly. And they seem that seems to resonate with them. And, you know, that's certainly an easy thing for us to do. And I think everybody else, you know, our, our software developers aren't necessarily expecting to, to go up the ladder, you know, as quickly. Right. Um, but that's become really important. Um, so we were able to, to, to streamline that a bit. I think another thing that we've learned is incredibly mission-driven. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And I'm speaking in very general terms because you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But more so than any other group, uh, generational group that I've worked with, I think they really care about what is the mission and what's their place in the mission. And that actually works really well in this company. because right, I think we're, a, we're, right, the values we're, we're organization. Pretty, yeah, we're right. such a mission-driven kind of place. So I think that that really works 
for them. Right. And, and we try to harness that kind of stuff. But it's it's really helped us think about things. So, for example, over the last couple of years, I've become very um, focused on giving back to the world because I think if we're very mission-driven anyway, sometimes it's nice to just step outside of your own world and do something for other people. And, and that benefits the community, but it also benefits us as people. So, for example... Um, a local organization in Boston called Tug Technology Underwriting Greater Good that works with a lot of local tech companies helping social endeavors. Um, we started getting involved with years ago and just helping out with projects and things. And, and then we started partnering with them on uh, this event they do every fall called Tech Gives Back. And, and it's a lot of businesses within the, the local community that will literally go give a day of service within a maybe a five or six mile radius. And we found that when our people go off site for a day and work together with people they don't normally work with on a daily basis, they build new relationships. Not only do they feel great about doing the work mm. and raking a senior's lawn right. or whatever, but they now have new people to work with at work. And they're building those cross-collaborative relationships that become so much easier that when we're on a sales call next week and you need help from somebody and that thing, you, I actually know somebody in legal right. that I can call right. it. And talk to so it's broken down a lot of barriers so we've done that for the last couple of years and now we've blown it out to the to the entire company so for the last two years we've actually done a day of service with tug on their day but every single office in the company will will do a give back day work together um, the same thing and, a lot of and it's worked really really multiple well multiple benefits it sounds like exactly too. so yeah. we're doing a lot of stuff like that um, as we continue to get a little bit larger and it's helping break down barriers that's right. that same speaker had um, two things I actually wrote them down and one of them he talked about was have negative competencies. For some reason, things stick out. And if you have a value that's do the opposite of that thing, mm-hmm. it works better. You have one here, I heard. Is it DBAA? Don't be an asshole. Yes. And that's a negative competency. But what, can you just yeah. talk about how that works, that dynamic of having a negative competency, and how does it work here? And- I, I think, you know, it's it's a little crass, right? But it's also... It's pretty to the point about who we are. So we have, you know, very well articulated values and and things that are really important to us. But at the core of it, like you can't be an ass here. You just can't. You, it's really hard to get fired here. This is like Harvard, right? Like hard to get in. But once you're here, it's it's pretty hard to leave unless you do something completely egregious or, or failing miserably. And then we try to part ways as humanely as possible. But the, the way that you get pushed out really quickly is if you're an ass. And fortunately, we don't have too many of them. We haven't we haven't had to do that very often. But it's such a crisp way of just saying, this is our bar for what works and what doesn't work here. And and if we see that behavior in someone, it just... And you can just you can see yeah, it quickly. Get, and they yeah, know, that's exactly. Not, that's it's, not, it's us. not us. Right. That's cool. The other thing he said that I thought was really interesting, he talked about some... I mean, you're much more skilled in people strategy than I am, of course. But he said something about performance and engagement don't come sequentially. You don't, they don't, you don't have engagement, then you have great performance that they happen simultaneously. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know if you, what I, you thought of that or um, if you have any comments yeah, about I, that. I, I think I probably agree. I mean, we think of, I think we were all sort of raised, and I'm old at this point, so I mean, I have like years going back of people thinking about the hierarchy and how do I get ahead and how do I, you know, move up the ladder, et cetera. And, and I think here we tend to not think of it as a ladder, but rather a lattice which is a semantic difference, but but it, there's no one way to get where you're going. You know, I look at the people on my team who are all quite different from one another and the paths that they're taking. They all may end up as chief people officers at some point, but they're taking very different paths to get there. 
Um, and I think that's true of a lot of our folks. And, and I don't think that, sure, there's some skills that you need to have, et cetera, but I don't think that, that any of us believe that you have to follow one prescriptive path to get anywhere and instead take advantage of every opportunity. Lee Weiner, who, who runs our products organization, is such a great example of that. He had been a web designer, I think, at one point in his career. He was a sales engineer. He's done a million different things. I think he was also like a, a music um, journalist at one point. I mean, he's just had a really fascinating career. Um, and now he's running products. And, and he said he ran into an old friend the other day, and they're like, how did you end up with that job? And he's brilliant at it. I mean, he's so, he's so strong. But I think he's just because I said yes to every really interesting opportunity, and it really formed the way that I think differently. And I think that's probably an undercurrent here. Like, we appreciate that people think differently, that they're not just, I'm going to have the perfect resume and go here to here to here to here, but rather, like, I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity put in front of me. I'm going to make the most of them, and that is going to make me a much more well-rounded, interesting person. That's great. So now we'll come to the NERA question of the podcast. We do this mm. podcast in cooperation with NERA. So advice you'd give to people up and coming in the people strategy function. Well, okay, so a couple pieces. One, choose CEOs wisely. So if you're... You're proof if, of that. Well, if you, if, whether you're junior or senior. I mean, if you're somebody more senior, it becomes incredibly more important because you're going to be the person's person. Um, but so choose a person that you really believe in and has integrity and, and truly, again, they don't have to know how to do it, but they have to believe in, in the importance of it. If you're a junior and just starting out, I think it's look for... Look at the leadership team. Look at every cue that you can take. It's not just about, you know, what's your salary and what's your title, but really, who is this company? What do they believe in? And and, and how are you going to learn in that environment? So I think that's one piece of it. I think the other piece is, if you are fortunate enough to find that person, take full advantage of having a voice. You know, this is such a pivotal time in the world. I mean, there's so many different things happening. But I think so many people in HR were raised as, you know, either the complaint department or the compliance people or the people that say no, that is such a waste of our role. Those things are important, but not nearly as important as finding the right people in your, or bringing the right people into your organization, scaling them, creating an environment where people are learning and growing and developing. And if you can figure that stuff out, everything else follows beneath that, right? And sometimes you have to be the dissenting voice at the table. You have to be able to ask the hard questions or challenge people. I don't know why, but I think that's really hard for people to do. And, you know, I have some theories as to why HR people aren't comfortable doing it, but get out of your own way. And, and if you really want to make the impact that you think you're capable of doing, you, you've got to be able to do that. I have found now that um, CEOs are begging for that. You know, I think one of the reasons that Corey and I connect as much as we do is that I have no ulterior motive. I'm not trying to take his job. I'm my next job as the CEO. I'm not trying to get anywhere. My my sole role here is to just to make sure that we're staying honest with ourselves about you know are we living up to the culture that we 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 pl- proclaim that we That's really right. believe in the values. Sure. And and you know sometimes you have to challenge things and sometimes you have to push things and and those can be hard conversations to have. But um, thankfully we've built that trust with each other that we can be pretty pretty candid. And right. you know we're fortunate to have a team that. That buys into that. That's well. true. Good advice. And um, if you could give advice to yourself, to your thirty-year-old self, if you had the opportunity to write a letter to your thirty-year-old self, giving yourself career advice or leadership advice, what what would you write? It would probably be a little younger than thirty. 
I think what I realized, and, and this is the one the one downside of saving it that I realized was, you know, when, when I was there, um, it was hyper growth to the nth degree. And we literally used to have sleeping bags under our desks and people would come through because it, it became like a macho thing to like, you know, pull all nighters and do this crazy stuff. And again, we were all kids. I mean, it was kids running a company. And at some, you know, we'd lie. People would come through, you know, oh, do you have a, do you, are you sleeping here? No, no, we have a camping club. I mean, it was just so bad. And, and but you I were think, sleeping there. And, you know, and I ultimately left after five years. It was an amazing experience. But I, I you know, I wanted to, to ultimately start a family. And I thought it would probably be advantageous if I was actually in the same state as my husband to, to try to make that happen. And I ended up going. And what I realized when I left was I felt like a cult victim who, who needed to be deprogrammed because my whole life was about that company. No fault of their own. It was my own, uh, my own fault. But it I think like a it lot wasn't of just us, you. Right, I yeah, think right. a lot you of us upset. behave that way where, you know, you're all your social circle, everything that you did became that place. And there was something really at that time really great about it. But it also made me realize whatever I do next, I can never just, I can't be one dimensional. I have to have other things that are important to me in, in my company. And I see that sometimes with some of our younger people here where, it's such an awesome culture. These are the people you want to spend time with. So, you know, their friend circle is this, whatever. And then if someone leaves, it is like absolutely devastating. And I think the point is like we all have lives outside of work and those are really important to have. And I think now that we've grown up and, and you know, I work with a leadership team that actually all has families and we all have whatever. You don't have to sleep under your desk to have massive impact. I would argue, obviously, I have a, a lot more wisdom having played this role for many more years. But I would argue, you know, if I had that insight when I was 25 or 30 um, at that period of time and I had something else going on in my life besides that job, I probably would have been even more effective at my job. And I think now I look back and, and you know, I, I, I do everything I possibly can here. And I, I argue, right, you're all I in, don't shut, but this, I'm this so life all balance. in, but man, I have a, I, probably not balance, but there's other things that I really care about. Um, and that I optimize for. And I think we all have those things. And, and I think we're probably all healthier and better off because of it. And probably more impactful in our jobs. Good insight. Now i got a couple silly questions for you. <laughs> we're wrapping up the podcast. Okay. Here. If you could meet any living person in the dinner, who would it be and why? Living person. Richard Branson is the first answer off the top of my head. Um, he just thinks Virgin. differently. Yeah. yeah. I just I think he's a pretty amazing, pretty amazing person. Right. You're going to walk away and I'm going to think of... 30 more answers, but he's, he, he would be the first one to pop in my head. If you were stranded on an island, what three items would you bring with you? Items or people? I, I'll I, let you change the answer. I, I would, bring I would, the people. I would bring um, my two daughters and my cell phone with a cord so I could plug it in <laughs> and not lose power because I could do everything from there. And do you have a secret life hack that you're willing to share? Um, I don't know if it's a life hack, but I think I realized I, I actually believe you can have it all. I just think you can't have it all at the same time. So what I have figured out as a, I'm a single mom with two teenage daughters, um, which explains all the gray hair. And, um, I don't see any. (laughs) You're kind. And what I realized is, you know, there's all kinds of things I want to do in my life and, and there's not nearly enough time to, to do them. So I've optimized right now for being the best mom I possibly can to navigate these interesting teenage years with my kids. Um, and I, I double down on that and I double down on work. And, you know, that means that 
probably my social life isn't as rich as I wish it was, or um, I don't get to do some of the things that I want, but that time will come and I keep that in perspective. So right now my life is about as balanced as it possibly could be based on the, the choices that I've made. Well, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank Christina. you for this having me. It's been really me. great discussion. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.